0: I got some mail this week, I got this, well actually it was a couple weeks ago I think I got this in the, in the mail and I wasn't sure what am I going to do with that. And maybe you've got one of these, maybe you've got a stack of them, I don't know, previous residents, maybe you have a whole handful of them and you're not sure what you should do with those. Well, I wanted to talk about elections and voting this morning. Now I know that talking about voting can get kind of personal, right? The, the one thing I want to suggest this morning is, is maybe it shouldn't be as personal. Voting shouldn't be as personal and emotional as it often gets. Now, by personal, I mean that we often form a, a personal, emotional feeling about one candidate or another, and that sort of drives how we vote. And so four years ago, go back to 2016, four years ago, there were many people that just really disliked Hillary Clinton just couldn't deal with that as a, as, a, as a valid choice. And on the other side, there were many people that were either embarrassed or offended by Donald Trump or things that he said or did and didn't know how they could vote there. And so it was kind of like that scene from the movie Master and Commander, Now, this is a movie about um, old uh, sailing warships. In the 1800s, a British warship is in pursuit around the tip of South America. They're chasing this French warship. In the midst of that, there's a a scene in the captain's cabin. The officers are gathered together, including the captain and his good friend, the ship's medical officer, the doctor. And they have a discussion there around the table that... (laughs) Reminds us of the difficulty sometimes of choosing. Do you see those two weevils, Doctor? I do. Which would you choose? Neither. There's not a scrap of difference between them. They're the same species of Cuculea. If you had to choose, if you were forced to make a choice, if there was no other response... if you're going to push me... I would choose the right hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? (laughs) He who would pun would pick a pocket. Now, there were two lines two lines that I think relate to um, to voting in politics today. Certainly one, and you must choose the lesser of two weevils. But did you catch the other one? He who would pun would pick a pocket. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can have a little fun with that and say he, would, he who would run might pick a pocket. So we have to be careful from that side as well. But some of us feel a bit paralyzed. We can, in fact, self-exclude ourselves. We can simply duck the decision of voting because we don't want to participate in joining ourselves to either this one or that one, either A or B. What do I do if I can't go with this one? I can't go with that one. Well, I like to think of elections and candidates as not personally about an individual person or candidate. I look at it as a basket of policies. Because I don't know these candidates. In fact, I can think of one time for sure, and that was for the uh, council chair position here in Clark County, one time for sure that I know of recently when I voted where I knew personally that candidate and could make a vote on that basis. Normally, I don't know the candidates. I know something about what they say, and I'm very concerned about what will they do what are the policies and where are those policies going to go? Now, let me issue a disclaimer right up front here. Do you think you have to have disclaimers when you're talking about political things? Right? Um, we each have different experiences. We have different makeups that sensitize us in different ways. That give us a different perspective or priorities on various issues. So let's make a deal this morning. I won't get mad at you for not agreeing with me on every policy application that I might suggest, okay? I will not hold it against you. Now, in exchange for that, would you also promise not to get mad at me if I don't agree with you on a particular policy application, we might differ on how we think the word of God applies to a particular policy or issue and that'll be affected by our own awareness, our situations, our sensitivities and a bunch of stuff. But let's try to agree together certainly on some principles that come out of God's word that ought to inform, ought to give some light to what should we do in this thing called voting. Well, the um, I, if I think about voting in terms of a, a basket of policies, I have in front of me two baskets. Now I need to choose one basket or the other. I I I I, I can't go fill my own basket. COVID restrictions and all, I have to take the baskets as they are with what's already been selected for me, what's already been put in one basket or the other. Now, you might say, well, you're not limited to those two baskets, Bob. There are third party, fourth party, fifth parties to choose from. You don't have to align yourself with this or that. Well, that's true. In fact, um, it's, it's, it's kind of unusual, but now and again, like in, our, in the race here in Washington for lieutenant governor, there's one candidate, Joshua Freed, is, 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 is mounting a pretty well-organized right-in candidacy. So that's certainly possible. But by and large, and certainly on the national stage, you're going to end up with one of two baskets delivered to your door, whether you took part in choosing the basket or not. So then, let's take a look at what's in these two baskets. In one basket, here we have many healthy things. In the photo there, I didn't actually show the spinach. We had to get the spinach out of the fridge. But there's spinach, there's bread, there's some granola, Quaker granola. That's good, healthy stuff. There's there's, um, a half gallon of milk. Now, it's not real milk. It's actually that almond milk stuff. So it's not really what I'm crazy about, but... There is, there is. I could probably hide the almond almond flavor in that uh, pumpkin spice chai latte, so that might work. And uh, but there is this National Enquirer. Now that's like a five dollar embarrassment, isn't it? I can't take that home. And then they, they, we've also gotten this basket, a big thing of Lacroix. You know what Lacroix is, right? It's um, it's fizzy flavored tap water that's kind of expensive and very little nutritional value whatsoever. Okay, well, let's look at the other basket then. Over here, there's a lot of things that look good to us. There's a lot of things that could entice us there, right? There's a frozen pizza. We've got some cereal here too. We've got Oreos. Those are probably good. There's Diet Pepsi. There's, there's a brownie mix. There's... Um, there's a um, uh, thing of ice cream down there, there's, there's some Starbucks, and there's the Smithsonian Magazine, the Smithsonian Institute Magazine. This particular issue has a new take on a nicer Nero. That might be interesting. <laughs> Overall, there's a lot of things in that basket that, that, that are enticing. This basket almost seems kind of like little adolescence meets NPR, right? Right? That's kind of the vibe I get from that basket. All right. So we've got two baskets. The items in each relate to various policies. Which basket will I choose? Which basket as a whole better meets actual needs? Well, if I'm only going to choose a basket that I can fully agree with, I'm not going to be able to choose either because I don't want to be seen taking home the National Enquirer. Okay? If I'm going to take a National Enquirer home from Safeway, I'm going, to get, I'm going to sneak in there in the middle of the night when nobody else is there, okay? I can't, I, can't, I, I can't be seen with that one. So I look over to this basket, and yet, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but Diet Pepsi, frozen pizza, and Oreo O's are probably not solid dietary choices. So what am I going to do? If the basket is pre-filled... I need to take them or leave them. I'm going to make my choice not on the appearance of the basket. One basket actually looks a little nicer, funner than others. But I'm not going to make my choice out of the appearance of the basket, but on what's in it. Among the various things in them that either I like or I don't like, but as a whole, which basket is going to be better. I'm not going to make my choice on personalities. I'm going to make my choice on policies. Now, if the items are illustrating policies, some better for us, even while another option might seem more enticing, how do I know what is the best policy that I should choose? Which policy would I go with? Well, last week we said that one of our essentials is biblical truth, so can I use biblical truth to help me know which policies matter most? What does the Bible say about who to vote for? Well, some of you are going to run to Ecclesiastes 10.2, right? Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines to the left. <laughs> hey. didn't, didn't Jesus himself say that the sheep were on his right hand and the goats were on the left? Now, 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 you can have fun with that, and you can certainly poke somebody and stir somebody up with, 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 with a political joke like that, but that's not a good use of Scripture. That is not the right in- interpretation, what we should get out of either one of those passages, is it? So, in fact, the Bible doesn't say much about voting at all. Paul didn't write to Timothy, telling Timothy, these are principles to apply, Timothy, when you vote. Probably because when you have an emperor who thinks that he's God, well, the population voting is not really a thing. You know, it doesn't happen. So, so, but is the Bible really silent there? The Bible doesn't tell us how to pray, or the Bible doesn't tell us how to vote for our leaders, governing officials. But the Bible does tell us how to pray. For our rulers, our governing officials. So maybe if we look at how we should pray, the direction of the things we should ask for, how we should pray, and why pray that way, that might give us some principles that we could apply to how we would vote. So I want to invite you to turn to First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two, verses one to eight. It's a call to prayer, but in this call to prayer, it's going to inform how then we. Also, can vote. I find principles here about faith in relation to government and society. I want us to consider these principles, and I'll also suggest as we go some policy applications that, that could flow out of these principles. Now, we might not all agree on every policy application. In fact, for our small groups that are using things out of the, out of the Sunday message in their small group discussions, I'm just going to pass along the, the principles from each of these verses as we go through. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to encourage those small groups to, to hash out how does that relate to policies on their own. We might not always agree on the application, but let's grab hold of these principles in our relating to government together. First, let's look at the first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that... Supplications, specific requests in particular circumstances, prayers, more general requests for regular universal needs, intercessions, praying for others, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are to pray in all kinds of ways for all kinds of people. Now it says there, pray for all people. And Paul was not in telling us now today that we must pray for all 7 billion people in the world. It's not all that way, it's all kinds of people. It's not just pray for your own family. It's not just pray for your own church. It's not just pray for Christians in the midst of society, but pray for even those pagan, those unbelieving rulers and officials which God has ordained within the societies. In the world, to pray for all kinds of peoples in all kinds of ways, because we are to seek the good of others around us. This is in line with, with what Jeremiah wrote to Daniel and the others of the early exiles in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 29 and verse 7, or rather in Jeremiah 29, there is no Daniel 29. Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, it says to seek the welfare, the good, the peace, the shalom. Seek God's good of the city in which you find yourself, for in its peace, or good, you will find your peace. As Christians, we long for Christ's kingdom. But we don't look forward to the unraveling, the spiraling downward of our society, which may well happen prior to his kingdom coming. But we don't look forward to that. We want to be salt and light in the midst of our society. We want to be showing and we want to be advancing how God's good can be experienced by others, that they might know from his good that they might know something of our God, even in that way. So we seek the good of others in society. We seek the good of all, not just our own good. For example, I know of people that have, that supported the last round of tax reforms, reforming the tax code, that even though they themselves in their own unique circumstances meant that those reforms meant that they would end up paying more taxes, still they supported the tax reform because it seemed that that was going to be what would be good for society as a whole. I don't raise that as an example of whether you agree with it or disagree with it, but the point is that we don't merely vote our own pocketbook. We seek the good of the city as a whole. We seek the good of society. What is it that would be good for others around us as we live in humanity together? Secondly, the fact that we pray for kings and rulers. There's something there. There's a principle there that we should grab hold of that reminds us that God is ultimately in, in charge, that God is sovereign, not present rulers. If Caesar had the final say, then why would God have told us to pray? We pray because Caesar, the emperor, did not have the final say. Not then, not now. This second principle means that we hope in God and not in election outcomes. That's important. One of the reasons we get so passionate, you have a political conversation today, and it feels like you're having a religious conversation, doesn't it? You know why that is? It's partly because you are. It's partly because for too many people, faith in God has been pushed aside out of our shared understanding, and too many people left without God to have faith in, they're without hope and without God in the world, and their only source of confidence, provision, protection is government. Government. So in some sense, they have a hope and trust in government that if you challenge that, you are having a bit of a religious conversation. But our hope is in God. That is our sovereign above the Caesar, if I can put it that way. And and we pray then to our God for the governing rulers as well as his good in society as a whole. We hope in God, not in election outcomes. The most important choice is not how I vote. The most important choice is who do I trust? Who do I trust? Verse 2 indicates there are certain results, there are certain good that we ought to advance and pursue, ask God for, and thus if we have the opportunity to ask our elected leaders for, we should do that in how we vote. We we should consider this. Verse 2 says that we seek to live peacefully and quietly not distressed by external pressures or conflicts or internal attacks against our own conscience, things that we're forced to do or participate in. Preserving essential freedom and liberty of thought and of action, we seek godliness and dignity for all people. It's surprising to some people when I would defend some other religion's right to go door to door and invite you to believe their lie. I, I defend that freedom because we need to have the freedom for other ideas and faith. if people are going to genuinely have freedom for the truth of the gospel. And yet more and more that is being, being uh, pressured and being limited and being pushed aside. We seek godliness and dignity reverence in life that's appropriate as image bearers of God. We see God's good in society, promoting blessings of goodness and morality. There's a policy choice that I want to suggest here, and that is which basket, which party, which candidate and the platform upon which they stand leaves more room for freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. You see, there's quite a difference between old liberalism and the new intolerance of aggressive progressives. Now, I'm not meaning by that that anybody who is more progressive is aggressive, but there is an aggressive progressivism, if I can get that out of my mouth, that is very intolerant of any other view. You've got to see it our way. This is the only right way, and if you don't see it that way, we will shut you down, we will silence you, we will cancel you, we will put a warning on your post. There's not room for you in the public debate. Which, which one is going to give more opportunity for freedom of speech and belief and conscience? Because people cannot believe our gospel if they're not free to believe. We need to have that openness in freedom of faith and conscience. An agenda that shames and shouts down or silences a valid contrary position is an agenda against freedom of belief and thought and speech. You and Paul advanced the gospel from place to place, city to city. The synagogues weren't necessarily popular with Rome either. But Paul didn't use his Roman influence where he had it in certain cities. He did not use that to try to silence synagogue or shrine. He only used his citizenship as a citizen of Rome in order to advance the freedom of people to believe in Jesus as another way, as a new way. And they turned the world upside down. Today, on the contrary, nuns are mandated to pay for birth control. A person who owns a private wedding venue is mandated to embrace any kind of wedding that might be held there, even if such a wedding might violate their own conscience and belief in faith. Views of gender or sex are, 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 are imposed by politicians in our schools, regardless of how parents believe or feel about that. A third principle emerges in verse 3. Look at verse 3 this this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior there is a good there is a pleasing there are things in society that are good to god there are things in society then are that are not good there are things that are pleasing then there are things also that are displeasing there's something about the nature and character of god that is not merely trying to make people good enough for heaven by imposing a morality upon them But there are things related to God's good that then are going to be good for humans who are made in God's image. Those are things that we should seek to advance and pursue in society. I want to advance certain policies, not just to be moral police, but to point to the goodness and blessedness which God desires for humanity. Pursuing God's good is seeking the peace of the city in which you find yourself. All right, well, what might that look like in terms of policy? Well, addressing moral goodness, the most basic human right is going to be the right to life. Which basket of policies, which party or candidate is closer to God's good in terms of the value of human life as it's related to abortion, as it's related to assisted suicide, and other issues? I would say for me... Abortion is one of those watershed issues. If I'm going to be a single-issue voter at all, that would probably be the issue. That's a big one. Now, I, I have to admit that, that I can't fully comprehend. I can't fully comprehend what it was. If I look back in history... I can't fully comprehend what it would be that would cause parents to take their child and in a, in a desperate situation or despairing circumstance, they would offer those children as a sacrifice on the offer, altar to the false god Moloch. I can't comprehend what would make parents do that. And I can't really comprehend the the moment of despair and distress or the press of circumstances that would cause parents, even today, to kill their child. But I do know this that that killing is disastrous for those parents and for our society. It matters. It is making a difference. This is not something. This is the kind of thing which God has ended societies over through history. Another policy question in the area of God's goodness, in this basket of policies pushing away from or closer to God's will for humanity is in the area of marriage and gender identity. Human, human identity, sexuality, and marriage. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that we single out and condemn certain sins above others. But what I'm saying is if, if when society corrupts the basic building blocks, upon which God has founded in humanity, in family, and in marriage, when we take those and reinvent them and corrupt them in the process, it is not going to be good and peaceable. It's not going to bring about fulfillment in society. In fact, it's going to bring about the opposite. It's going to bring about despair. For instance, did you know that among those that have transgendered, the risks of suicide attempts is astronomically higher it's exponentially higher than those who have not even if uh, even compared to those who have not who are experiencing confusion about their gender identity to 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 turn people in this way we need to care about that impact that outcome and the despair that people are left with when what was promised cannot be delivered our society is rushing to new places we claim to be more enlightened in these last few decades than human civilizations have ever been over thousands of years maybe maybe we are suddenly more enlightened or maybe as romans 1 says professing to be wise we've become fools Related to this, in Washington State, one more good-in-society issue that comes to mind for me. In Washington State, we're voting on new sex ed requirements that define what it is that's going to be taught in the area of sexuality to kindergartners and then in various grade levels upward from there. Which basket, which party, which platform is going to lean more towards letting parents instruct beliefs and let schools focus On academics you may not have children in school but we need to care for the good of children around us in society there's a speaking of society as a whole there's a theological point in verse 4 let's let's see if we can tease it out verse 4 says God desires that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth Well, that tells us something about our God. God is inclined toward us. God wants us to know his truth. God wants us to be saved. The reality is, though, that we need to be saved. Did you catch that? There is a universal need among humanity that comes to us through the fall that humanity is fallen in sin. We need to be saved. There's something wrong with humanity. And this, this points to this, this theology of human depravity that we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior and in, in need of God's truth rather than our own solutions, that suggests an overall outlook toward humanity together in society. And how will people act? Will people generally, generally left to themselves, will they do what's going to be good will they end up doing what's going to be bad? Are people overall good or are people overall sinful? Now, I'm not trying to make character judgments upon you or or me, but we cannot ignore. If we ignore and gloss over the sinfulness of humanity, we'll do it to our peril. This is why, for instance, we need police. Now, I don't think the defund the police movement is going to go nearly as far as some people say that it would, but the notion has difficulties, and the notion tells you something about what people are believing about people. Because Romans 13 reminds us that government has an essential role of restraint in a society when you crowd individual sinful people together as a whole in a community, those are self-centered inclinations of serving ourselves in sinful flesh. They are going to cause problems when we run up against other sinful people doing the same thing, and that's all of us. And there needs to be restraint. Let me give you an example: the Washington State Patrol. Let's say they make an announcement that they have discovered that they have ticketed way more red cars on the freeway for speed than they have blue cars, and that's not fair. That's not right. So for the next year, while they reflect and study this issue, they've announced that they're not going to be giving tickets to anybody. That's good news, right? What do you think is going to happen on the freeway? Chaos. Let me ask you, let's get a little more personal. How are you going to drive on the freeway in the next year? We're going to have a little fun. We're going to see what this V8 can do, right? How fast can that car go? there's there's no tickets to come this year, right? There's going to be more speed accidents. There's going to be a lot more transgression of the speed limit that's still there if the speed limit is not enforced. Why? Because we have a natural tendency to rebel against law. Law needs to be enforced. So, which government is, or which party, which platform, which basket of policies is going to lean more in that direction? Now, I understand there is a need at time to challenge the order in society. There is a need at time to address institutional or what are called systemic issues within the governing culture that need to be addressed. But there's a big difference. There's a long way between refusing to wear a mask and burning down the courthouse. All right. And there are are things that have a drastic, obvious, immediate impact upon the law and order of our society as a whole. Okay, there's an issue of sin and conduct. What about economics? Did you know that issue of human depravity actually pushes us towards a definition in economics as well? There are two main competing economic theories in the world. I'm not an economics major, so I will simplify it. It's relatively simple for me because I'm relatively simple. There's capitalism and there's socialism, okay? Capitalism assumes that people will generally do what is in their own best interest. Now, is that a good thing? That's a selfish thing. Come on, you're only thinking about yourself. You're doing what's good for your own self-interest. Shame on you. That's what we do, of course, We're fallen. And the essence of the the human fall is a self-centeredness. It's a what's in it for me. I'm not saying capitalism is a righteous system. I'm saying that capitalism takes account of human self-centeredness. In fact, that's the engine that makes it go. Well, if that's reality in a fallen world, then that's going to make sense. It's going to work if there's some built-in protection now there's some problems with it as well in capitalism you're going to have excesses of greed you're going to have disparity between rich and poor and that occurs among CEOs and celebrities so yeah there's problems that you see sin there too we can game this system and yet let's think about socialism does socialism assume that people are going to generally do what's in their own best interest no Socialism optimistically assumes that if the right people try it, that each will contribute according to their ability. Some contribute more than others. And yet each one will only take according to their own need. I may contribute a bunch and only take a little. And I heard somebody laugh in the back of the room. (laughs) It doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. Why? Because depravity tells us that we are essentially self-centered. Aside from the redemption of Christ and his transforming work. And so society in general is going to take advantage of such a system. I'm going to sit down and let somebody else work and contribute. And then I'm going to take according to my need and wants if I can. So that system has to be enforced to the point that it, re- it results not only in futility but in oppression. So you have two economic choices that are rooted in your understanding of the effect of sin on humanity in society. Now, I'm not saying inherently. You can make an argument that socialism is a good thing. Within Christian church or mission, it could be. You could say, well, in the early church, they each brought their property. They laid it down at the leaders of the church that they would distribute to the needs of all. Absolutely. We worked in a mission for about a dozen years where I, as, first of all, a, a, a transmitter shift operator supervisor, and then as, a, as an operations manager, I was paid more than the field director for all of Swaziland, the person responsible to keep all of it running and to manage all the the cross-cultural conflicts that would arise. I was paid more than him, not because I was smarter than him or did more than him, but because we had a family of four children, and it was just they and their wife, and our mission gave a living allowance to each according to a set formula based on family size and cost of living in the country. We had more expenses with more mouths to feed and so we were given more. And yet we all willingly signed up for that and we each worked at whatever task we were given because we worked together by faith for the good of others in the gospel. So there's room. Now still jealousy arises in a situation like that. What about me? And yet the redemption and the transforming in Christ can can make such an ideal work. But in society as a whole, among sinful people, it will not. It will disappoint us. It brings us to the the last couple of principles in verses 5 to 7. Let's read 5 to 7. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This verse underscores what is our overall priority. Our overall priority is not to political party. Our overall priority is as ambassadors for the one true God. In contrast to any other substitute God. In the first century, the substitute God was Rome, And its emperor. Rome and the emperor provided the basic needs of society if you played by Rome's rules. But But government is always going to be a poor parent and a disappointing God. And yet we can still be tempted to look to government as our security, as the preventer of evil or calamity, as the provider of all of our basic needs, anywhere from food assistance to guaranteed income. But society is corrupted when voters learn to look to the government for that, and when, when, when voters realize that in voting for this candidate or that one, this party or that one, they can vote to their own benefit and for their own pocketbook. Candidates realize it too. And so quickly they learn that they can buy your vote with other people's money. That's how it works, right? Right? They will promise you things that they'll make somebody else pay for if you will vote for them. We dare not be enticed into that as 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 good as it looks because that will corrupt society and and it will it will drag down not lift up human flourishing in our society. Don't be tempted to look for government as our security. Our our preventer of evil, or our provider of needs. Looking to government to provide our needs and decide the issues of life for us is going to be like returning to the first century when the government thought that it was God, even though it was not. The policy question here then is which candidate, which party, which platform is promising to give to us or do for us that which we should do and provide for ourselves. I'm not saying I'm against assistance. I'm not saying that we... I'm not saying that we don't help those in need. That we don't provide a way up. But I'm saying that we rely first on God. And we rely on the abilities and the opportunities that God gives us. And we allow consequences of choices to reinforce better choices. We resist the enticements to vote ourselves a benefit. Secondly... Which basket, which candidate, which party is more supportive of the freedom? If our priority is the advancing of faith in Jesus among society, which of these choices is likely to lead to more openness or less openness to freely share my faith with others? Which of these two parties, groups, platforms is more likely to find the discussion of faith with others offensive versus interesting or at least allowable or at least part of those essential rights to faith and speech that we have known. My ultimate responsibility is to not support a particular party, but to advance, to share this good that I have, this trust and hope in God, our Creator, with others, others around him who desperately need them. Even as that, too, there's increasing pressure for that to be silenced. Now, talking about what we believe and sharing Jesus with others brings us back around to verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I desire then, Paul concludes, and he does this kind of in a transition into the next paragraph I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or argument. Talking about what we believe about Jesus brings us back around as verse 8 provides that nice summary. Paul has been talking about faith and prayer in the area of politics and rulers. Certainly in matters of faith and politics, it's harder to have a discussion without anger and quarreling, right? It's harder to talk about, about politics without anger and arguments. And yet, my responsibility is to participate in the privilege of voting as one of the ways that I can be salt and light, in one of the ways that I can seek the good of others around me. And yet I'm not suggesting that we should seek to increase the good by persuading others in our political perspective. Perspective, You can do that. Our, our country was founded on the freedom to do that. But our first call, our priority, is to advance faith in Christ. That's where we need to focus, that we are called, when it comes to persuading, we are called to be ambassadors for the gospel, not politics. I've urged that your politics should actually be framed by your faith, because your faith is what's primary. Therefore, the most important issue between you and your neighbor is not politics and voting, but it's faith in Christ, right? And yet, right now, what does your neighbor want to talk about Based on the yard signs, it's politics, right? There's no yard, I haven't seen a yard sign yet that says, What happens when I die? I've seen yard, lots of yard signs endorsing this political view or that. That's what they want to talk about. Chances are you're going to get asked by somebody, Well, who'd you vote for? Don't answer with a name, answer with a principle. You know, this year as I'm thinking about voting, there are things going on, and, and I was thinking this way. And share one or two of those principles out of God's Word that really constrains you. That my faith in God tells me that, that as easy it is it is to go that way, that I don't need to trust the government for that, but this is what's good for people in society and maybe that that discussion about voting that turns to principles might go further into where those principles and faith and hope come from the section begins and ends calling us to pray so in this partisan political moment divided as it is let's do that let's pray for God's good in society around us. Let's pray for abundant opportunities to share our hope in God in the midst of society. Let's pray all kinds of ways for all kinds of people. And right now, right now in closing, we'll pray for our rulers and leaders. We'll pray for this political process. We'll pray instead of getting angry about what's going on because we trust God who invites us to pray. So what is there to get angry about? Let's pray. Father, we do trust you. Lord, we will admit, we will confess, Father, that in the midst of lots of stuff, we can lose sight even of where our ultimate hope is. We can get caught up in the moment. We can get caught up in issues. Lord, would you help us to remember our faith and our trust in you So that we seek to help and to do good, to be salt and light in the midst of this moment in our society, in our community, among our neighbors. But Lord, would you give us the the freedom then to do so hopefully rather than angrily. To do so in faith rather than by arguing. That we trust you to give understanding. So Lord, would you help us then, just give us the courage to express our hope, express our faith, express principles that you have shown us that seem to matter for the good of people in society. Lord, would people around us know, by how we engage, that we really do care about the needs and hurts of people around us. And Father, we do pray for our country, we pray for our leaders. We do pray for stability, Lord. We pray for order. We pray for the freedom for people to move about and work and believe and express their faith, even those which differ from our own, that we do have freedom to engage together. Father, we pray for the future of our society, not knowing where it goes. But Lord, we do trust you, and we trust ourselves to you in it. So, Father, Would you use us among our neighbors in this city for your good? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.